Hello and welcome to the Gamers Tavern, episode number 46. We've got a great one for you with author Elizabeth Moon talking about her series, The Deed of Paxinarian. And this is an amazing series that Ross and I are both big fans of. And we're also joined by the Gamers Tavern social media coordinator, Lauren Raber, who was in the process of reading the books. And she has since finished them and is totally in love. We'll not stop talking about it. But I'm going to warn you right now. We talk about all three books in the Dita Paxinarian series, and we get pretty spoilerific. So if you haven't had a chance to check this out now, go ahead, feel free, pause this episode, go to audibletrial.com slash gamers tavern, where you can get the first book, Sheep Farmer's Daughter, for free by signing up for the free trial through there. Or if you'd rather get everything all at once, or if you're more of a Kindle or even paper person, go to our affiliate links in the show notes where you can click, go straight to her books as well as all of her science fiction books as well and buy them all, read them all, come back and listen to us talk with Elizabeth Moon where she sheds a lot of light on the process of writing these books and a lot of the things that even we didn't know and Ross has been a fan of this series for a long time. But yeah, we fanboy out a lot of this. So go ahead and grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Need more dice? Heck yeah, who doesn't? How would you like to pay a fraction of the cost that you would typically spend at the normal game store? In fact, you can grab 105 dice for 15 complete 7 dice set for under $24. Yeah, check it out at easyrollerdice.com and enter the code GAMER at checkout and immediately get an extra 10% off your purchase and shipping is always free. Go to easyrollerdice.com now and remember to enter the code GAMER at checkout. We'll see you there. The Gamer's Tavern Podcast is sponsored by Pinnacle Entertainment Group's Savage Worlds game featuring Deadlands, 50 Fathoms, East Texas University, Weird Wars, and dozens of fantastic licensees. Savage Worlds is fast, furious, and fun. Welcome to the Gamers Tavern Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. And I'm Lauren Raber. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to the show. She is kind of joining us as an extra guest tonight. Yes, and I'm extremely excited. I'm usually just see me on the back end doing all the social media. I'm the Facebook lady. So you're actually more like an extra host, is what I should say. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, absolutely. And tonight we have one of my favorite authors of all time joining us as a guest. Please welcome... Miss Elizabeth Moon. Hi there. Welcome Hi. to be here. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. I am very glad to be here. Thank you. So I'm sure you've probably never heard us before. So just so you know what's going on, the Gamers Tavern podcast, we are a podcast that primarily focuses on tabletop role-playing games with the occasional foray to things like video games and novels. And tonight we're kind of trying something a little different. Tonight we're doing something we're kind of calling, at least between Daryl and myself, a book club episode. <laughs> yeah, we're, okay. we're, we're still hammering out the branding on that one. So the, the book club episodes, we're going to try and focus, you know, due to our listenership, we're going to try and focus on books that have a connection to tabletop gaming. And at least if the stories I've heard are true, the book we're going to be covering tonight does, in fact, have such a tie. The book we're talking about tonight is really an omnibus edition of three separate books. And the omnibus edition's title, and at least the one I've heard most people 
describe the series as is called the Deed of Paxinarian. Is that yep. that pretty much what everybody you know calls it uh, when they? I assume when people they don't really get into the the individuals. They talk mostly about the trilogy. Is that right? That's true now, certainly. Okay. Well, that's how I discovered it in 1992 was, was as the omnibus. But before we get into the main topic, we're going to do a thing where we'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and where they might know you from in the context of a gaming character sheet. <laughs> Can you do that for us, Elizabeth? Mm, I'll try if you'll remind me of some of the things I need to know. <laughs> uh, no problem. Well, I imagine, you know, you'd probably describe yourself as a level 20 author. I think so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fantastic. For the listeners, can you tell us about what you are best known for as an author? Probably the Paxanarian books, epic fantasy, somewhat for military science fiction, and somewhat for pure silliness, like in the uh, Bronze Bra books, the Chicks and Chainmail books. Oh, the uh, uh, Esther Friesner is the editor of those, I believe. Yes, she is. Yes, those are great. But I... I I'm a big fan of Esther as well, and I've read most of the Chicks and Chainmail as well. Got to love those Larry Elmore covers on those. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> of course, you know, good connection to tabletop there with Larry as well. Yes. All right. So are you an elf? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think my ancestry might be mysterious. That is the most interesting answer I think we've ever had to that question. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. And also, you in in your real life gaming character sheet, you actually have proficiency with blades, particularly fencing. Is that right? That's right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That started probably about 1998. No, it was earlier than that. 1996, I think. I met some SCA people at a convention in Austin at ArmadilloCon, and they said, "You write well about this sort of thing." would you like to learn to actually fence? And I said, yes, of course. I've been wanting to for years. So they took me over to their house one evening, and I picked up an actual rapier, and there began the fencing lessons. <laughs> Fantastic. Austin, uh, I just moved away from there, unfortunately. I lived there for about three years, and uh, it is the, exactly that kind of place where you'll find people fencing in the park <laughs> on a warm summer day. So, so fantastic. And you've been fencing ever since. You're actually a captain of a team, is that right? Yes, the Sifwa Musketeers. We're kind of getting old and creaky, and we don't all make it to conventions enough anymore, but <laughs> we definitely had a lot of fun. Now, Sifwa is an acronym for? Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America. Aha. Okay. Now, uh, the next thing we're going to get into is we're going to talk about what kind of games we've been playing lately. And I think... Fencing probably counts for you, in, unless you want to tell us about any other games that you found interesting that you've been playing lately. I haven't been playing games lately. I've been writing books lately. <laughs> there's a lot of them. There's kind of a, a time problem there. Yeah. When you're, you know, when you're writing the way I write, you don't have time for game playing. You don't have time to get a group together. And I've actually found that I liked the writing more than the game playing, so please don't kill me for that. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I mean, everybody's got the thing that they do, and you, you are an excellent writer, so there's no denying and that. I'm not going to name names, but there's a couple of fantasy authors out there I wish would spend a little more time writing and a little less time playing games. Uh, let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a suspicion, but I will be polite and stay far away from it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the best thing. All right, so I'm going to jump to Lauren. Lauren, what have you been playing lately? 
Uh, we've been doing a lot of uh, board type games lately here. We've been playing. Uh, uh, like Munchkin. Uh, Munchkin Panic. I've I haven't laughed that hard in a while, but it wasn't nearly as fun as our two player Cards Against Humanity game that lasted till two o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning. So. Wow. And for those wondering, the two player variant on Cards Against Humanity is where. You basically draw a random card and see if the card you picked can beat the card that was random from the deck. But I've got my Cards Against Humanity deck so slimmed down to just the best cards. It <laughs> beat our asses every time. So Cards Against Humanity yeah. and Munchkin. Munchkin okay. Panic. Uh, Starflux. Pan- Starflux and uh, Pandemic, actually. Oh, yeah. That was it's, kind of an should, intense we game. We that someday. We, uh, yes, we, we totally lost. should. <laughs> we got overwhelmed. See, what else have we played lately? Oh, I started going through my Magic the Gathering cards again. Oh, wow. Yeah, I haven't played Magic in about five or six years now, I think. And I'm something I can't afford right now, but it's very Thankfully, tempting. Thankfully, she's doing it when I'm at work, apparently, because I haven't seen them. And I don't want to get sucked back in. It's like Michael Corleone. So- I'm finally out. <laughs> Daryl, what, what, have, what have you been playing lately? Or does that pretty much cover you as that well? That pretty much covers me as well. Okay. Uh, as for myself, I've been, uh, of course, uh, playing more Sentinels of the Multiverse. There's a new expansion out for the iPad, which new characters and new villains. And oh my god, it's amazing. Um, and then lastly, I have played in Sean Fannin's new thing where he's got a, a riff on Icons, uh, the Assembled Edition, which is a oh. very interesting game system. I really like the rules light approach. I really like the uh, semi-fateness of it. It's kind of very much like fate, but it's cool with superheroes, and, and we did some really fun stuff uh, with that. We're going to keep playing that some more here in town. And, of course, this weekend is Genghis Khan here in uh, Aurora, Colorado, which is going to be uh, four days of awesome gaming. Um, but let's uh, let's let's jump over that and let's let's jump into the main topic. Let's talk about well, for, you know, before actually before we jump into Datapack Scenario specifically, I want to mention and call out Elizabeth Moon's of other works because people who like Datapack Scenario should definitely check out the Harris Serrano series and Vada's War, which is just some fantastic military sci-fi. Elizabeth, those are, uh, how long ago did you, did you write those? I think there's probably like 10 years. Let's see. The, uh, <clears throat> the Serrano books started in the early nineties, I would say, uh-huh. and ran through most of that decade. The last one I think came out in 1999. And then the Vada's War books started early in this millennium. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to remember exactly when. I think the first one may have been 2004 or 2005. And then there were five of them. Then I went back to Paxinarian's world and did the five of those. Right. And I, I just want to briefly mention the Harris Serrano and Vada's work because they all take place in the same universe, which oh, is really no. cool. Uh, the Familius Regnant? Is the that- Familius Regnant is one universe and Vada's War takes place oh, okay. in another. Then I, I was mistaken. So the Harris Serrano books are in a, a particular universe called the Familius Regnant, uh, which is – if you are a, a, a military sci-fi lover or a horse riding lover – <laughs> those are excellent books because they cover a lot of both of those topics. And then uh, Vada's War is simply just some of the best military sci-fi I've ever read. So let's just leave Thank it you. at that. Thank you. Oh, my God. We could probably do a whole show on Vada's War specifically or even Harris Serrano. But let's get to the focus, which is Dita Paxanarian. Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about the character 
of Paxinarian? Paxinarian is a paladin in a fantasy world, and she is a paladin the way I thought of paladins. And you're right that she has her roots in my antipathy for the paladins in D&D. <laughs> I've always heard that story. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a friend who had a son about, oh, 10 or 11 years old, I think, at the time, who wanted to play D&D, but his father was unwilling to play with him. And he couldn't find other kids in this town that wanted to play. So he talked to my husband, and my husband agreed to DM for him. The next thing we knew, we had, I think, five altogether (laughs) young boys playing at our house with my husband as the DM, and two of the parents who didn't want to drive all the way back to the town they lived in joined in with him, and at first I was sitting on the couch trying to write the story I was trying to write and listening to this, (laughs) and being predominantly a writer and not a gamer, I was critiquing the stories. Right. Which, of course, was annoying to the players. (laughs) They didn't particularly like that. And finally, they said, if you're going to talk about it, you have to do it. Uh Uh-oh. Now, I had played uh, some board games with my husband before, some war games, and again, found myself fretting about how it was set up, because I have a history degree, and so I would look at it and say... You ought to be able to go over here. You ought to be able to do thus. That's more historically correct. (laughs) I got to say, the pole arms especially must have just driven you insane. Um, I have a story about pole arms a little later. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) But I did start playing with them. And one of the things that had annoyed me, I read all the books, all the directions, all the rules, everything. One of the things that annoyed me was the assumption that to be a good person, you had to be fairly stupid. (laughs) You had to do stupid things in order to be considered good because you were that kind of rigid good that reminds me of certain people in real life, Mm. but they aren't paladins to me. So I made my character uh, start out as level one and have to learn things and make mistakes. And I was enjoying this until the point when... For other reasons, families moved, stuff happened, the group kind of fragmented, and then it wasn't as much fun, and I thought, hmm, one of the group, the original boy, was moved all the way out to Utah with his family. Wow. And I knew he was very unhappy about the move. Wasn't sure he would ever get to play D&D again. Miserable. So I thought, I will write him a short story that connects to what we've been playing. You know how long a short story can be? <laughs> About that long. 12 books? <laughs> yeah, something well, like that. I've seen a trilogy yes. in five parts, so. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it grew. Wow, and that's it amazing. Also, it went way, way away from anything that we had played because my husband had been the DM. Mm-hmm. He had been designing all of the action, and he did a very good job, by the way. He's an excellent DM. But once I got hold of it, of course, (laughs) once the writer gets hold of it, everything changes. Mm -hmm. So I was able to take it and go a long way. The original scene, the first scene that was in the story, never got into the book. Mm, In fact, about a chapter and a half never got into the book. Well, now now I'm really curious to know what was in that chapter and a half. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Oh, let's see. There was um, there was Pax walking into a tavern, and somebody said, "What's your name, Yellow Hair?" <laughs> she said, "Paxinarian Dorothy's daughter of three furs." Nice. That was the first time I knew what her last name was. <laughs> the first time I knew she came from three furs, and she never was in that tavern in the book. She also never went. Let's see, somewhere in there when I was writing it, there was something that was too much like the game and not enough like what she really did. That was the part of the chapter I had to take out. Well, I'm sure, you know, the books are are, are the best that, that they can be because they are just amazing. So I, I don't want to critique anything at all. But um, it's awesome to hear about these sort of proto stories before they the, – the bits that kind of got put on the cutting room floor. You know what I mean? It's really interesting to see behind the scenes a little bit. It is about 30% shorter, believe it or not, than it was when it started. I didn't know how to write a novel. I could had never really finished short stories. I'm not a natural short fiction writer. I'm a natural long-form writer. But I didn't know that until I had finished this whole monster thing. So there was a lot that had to be thrown out. Well, it, it, again, I just want to say, you know, this is – Dita Paxonary is one of the most – important books, I think, that I read as a young reader. I picked it up in 92 when I just graduated high school, and it is just brilliant storytelling. It's it's fantastic. And I'm not alone in this. I mean, I want to point out that if you go to Amazon.com and look it up, there's 365 reviews of this book. 284 of them are five out of five stars. Wow. Just to be clear, <laughs> you know, this is, we're talking about a book that won uh, the award for the uh, was the Baltimore. Let me see here. I'm trying to get yeah. this. Uh, the Compton Crook Award for a first a first novel. Yeah, you should have seen me when they called and told me about it. I was sort of going all screechy and jumping up and down, and <laughs> <laughs> bouncing and going, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god!" You know, all of that. Well, you know, just talk really quickly about Paxinarian and specifically like the roles of women in. The Deed of Paxonary in the trilogy and beyond. I think the roles of women in the novels are all really well developed. Women's are, women are leaders. They're warriors. They're heads of state. I mean, the Marshal General of Gerd is essentially a head of state. Yep. And, but beyond their, their representation, their gender is not ignored either. No. Uh, what I wanted to do with women in this world was have realistic women who had some opportunities that they don't in other fantasy worlds because I felt that they could do that. Because I had a military background, right. I was interested in what would a female military mind be like? How would a woman commander function? I mean, I had been a junior commander. I had some knowledge of this. And I knew that in the past, in history, there were women who had actually fought in non-industrial type combat mostly in hiding, mostly concealed. But there was a case in the 13th century, which is mentioned in Tuchman's uh, uh, Distant Mirror, where the wife of a nobleman had to defend the castle, her husband's castle, he was away. And she put on armor and led her troops out on horseback. Now, what this tells you is, because armor in those days had to be made for each individual, had to be fitted. It tells you that noble women, some of them at least, trained, 
knew how to wear the armor, had armor to wear, knew how to ride a war horse, had a war horse they could ride with a saddle that fit them as well as the horse. Right. This is no casual thing, right? No casual thing. And her troops followed her and they routed the enemy. Right. And I mean, this is, of course, there's a, the more classic examples of Joan of Arc and Boudicca. But some, yeah, the, it, it's really, I think it's wonderful how it comes across in the, in the Pax novels. Uh, I think you were, you hit the target you were aiming for. Now, Daryl, you have something you wanted to say about Paxinarian, right? Yeah, there's one thing that I, there's a lot to love about the character. But uh, one thing I wanted to point out is, as far as I'm aware, it's one of the few characters where not only is Paxinarian kind of in her sexual preference, she is asexual in that she doesn't show any interest in romantic or sexual relationships for the most part. But it's not any sort of, thing about it it's actually addressed it's talked about and that's one of the few times i can remember seeing that in any sort of genre fiction so yeah. there's always the tacked on love story to every single big epic thing and and pax has just got bigger fish to fry basically <laughs> yeah that's one of the things that one of my editors at some point said you cannot have all of your characters asexual you've got to, <laughs> you've got to start putting some sex in your books <laughs> And I thought, well, okay, you know, <laughs> because I find it interesting that there are people who are functionally asexual who find other things more interesting. Yes. Other things more, more compelling at the moment. And it was fun to write her in that way. While I did have other characters who were sexual, that had sexual preferences. Now, in the later books, I think, uh, this is kind of transferred to, uh, Arcolin. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting it wrong. It's the, the mage. Knight. Uh, I may have that, that name incorrect. Oh, Doran? Doran, yes. Yeah, it's, it's transferred yeah. to Doran, I believe, in the, in the later books. Doran's a little different. Doran's asexuality may be related to the childhood trauma she had. I didn't want that for Pax because I think there are people who are not particularly sexually active and it has nothing to do with trauma. But in the case of Doran, much of her character was shaped by the absolutely hideous childhood she had. You know, and this is a thing that I want to point out is I think I love the fact that your, your, your characters all seem real in a, in a lot of ways to me. And that has to do with the fact that they have families that feel real, right? They weren't born to, you know, wealthy doctors who gave them everything that they wanted, <laughs> like other characters I could name. They are, they're born into families that have feuds and spats and, Sometimes, you know, trauma and horrific, you know, things that happen. They're born into families that feel like real families. I was hoping for that. Yes. <laughs> I, I love that's that's something I point out all the time when I talk about Elizabeth Moon's characters is I think they they, they always feel like they have like a real family and real relationships and, you know, flaws and things like that. But before, you know, just just to, to keep the focus a little bit on packs, Lauren, you've read this book recently. I just started reading it yesterday, actually, and it has me completely sucked in. Yeah, she is almost done with the first book, and I've warned her she's getting spoiled to hell and back. Yeah, there's spoilers. So. For any <laughs> listeners who have not read Paxinarian, we're going to be spoiling the hell out of stuff tonight. So yeah, I look forward to the spoilers, and that way, and hopefully everything that we're talking about today will just help bring things even more to life in my crazy imagination. So... Now, what's what's your opinion of Paxinarian, Lori, from the first book? Uh, so far, like I said, it has me completely hooked. I love the strong female character and the fact that she actually has doubts. And she overcomes those doubts saying, I 
wanted this, I will finish this. And that is very empowering to anybody, especially women. Well, she works really hard. Paxonarian does. Uh, mm-hmm. She works hard for pretty much everything she gets. Although there are times when she kind of does have something given to her, but that doesn't really work out so well. <laughs> yeah, first spoiler, Lauren. Uh, pretty much the only time I can remember where something was kind of handed to Paxonarian where she didn't earn it was when she was uh, when she was doing the training uh, at the at, at uh, sorry, it's been a Couple months the Marshal General of so, Gerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Marshal General basically said, "We're going to move you up to Paladin training, even though you aren't quite. You haven't met all the requirements we normally have because we need to hurry up and get Paladins out there." And so that was kind of handed to her, and it kind of blew up in everybody's face. Well, yes. <laughs> you could you could make the argument that the Ring of Animal Control that she gets from the adventure with the elf is also something that's given to her that does not go well. Uh, yeah, that one didn't end up that well. Which, by the way, we'll get into that in a second. Because that's one of the best gaming call-outs I think I've ever seen is the ring of yeah, control. Just, I'm, just, I'm so into that. <laughs> that was an absolute great moment. I think we should actually talk about that one a little bit later when well, we, get okay. to, when we start breaking down jump, the story. But Do you want to jump into that specific thing then? Uh, well, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into that one specifically. All right, we're going to break from the script a little bit, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> but but that moment was great, and I I had completely forgotten about it until Ross just mentioned it right now. I was reading through the novels today, but I didn't get that far into it. But at some point in time, there's this war horse that no one can tame, but she uses a ring of animal control and forces it to tame for her, and it kind of teaches her a lesson where it, it backfires on her, and it's you shouldn't lean on things that you don't fully understand. Like well, it, it's and, it's an interesting approach to looking at what in any other story would be a cool magical item, mm-hmm. right? And Pax learns a valuable lesson from it and, in fact, basically resolves never to use it again because of the way it made her feel, which I, I, I thought that was really interesting. You don't really see that in books where, where some guy, you know, gets the magic sword or he gets, you know, Excalibur or whatever, you know, whatever the, the particular item needs to be. It's usually like, wow, check out this awesome thing. Right. <laughs> and, and, I mean, and Bilbo's running like, around shoving the one ring on his finger all the, all over the place. <laughs> okay, in the maybe Hobbit, not, but maybe not Bilbo. Okay. Bilbo. He, well, he, that ended up coming back later on, but in the Hobbit, no, it's, he's just throwing that ring on anytime he feels like it. Uh, let's, I, I would, I would argue actually the Hobbit is, you know, taking that magic item thing a little more that was, seriously. That was an addiction to power. But but specifically, the, the Ring of Animal Control was, you know, it was a neat way. It made me, ch- it definitely changed the way I looked at magic items in gaming. Even when I'm when I'm playing a, a role-playing game character and I find something cool, it, it made me wonder about that a little bit. Because, you know, it, I, I thought that was a wonderful scene. One of the more memorable scenes, uh, of which there are many. <laughs> I would say it's also a way to show the danger of secret power of yes. wanting to keep your power secret because she did that initially with the horse she had felt guilty after she killed the snow leopard or after right. Sinian killed the snow leopard but when she used it with the horse she's deliberately hiding it and then she realizes that in addition to it not being fair and not showing her true training ability if she had any it's a dangerous thing to keep the source of your power secret and and the way Simeon like encourages her to use it is very, you know that's a that's where I see a lot of like typical gamers going yeah come on it's just a ring use it you know <laughs> well it wasn't just that it was that the whole scene with him and just yeah. how much he kept twisting logic to 
basically absolve himself of any guilt of anything. I didn't do anything wrong. That was all your fault. If you feel guilty about killing that animal, you shouldn't have done it. But you told me to do it. So you shouldn't have done it anyway. Yeah. And he was taking advantage of a person who was very naive. Mm-hmm. She thinks she's experienced at that point. But she's been living in this bubble of the mercenary company right. where other people decide what the morals are, what the ethics are. And once she's out on her own, she's still a very young person and a very inexperienced person. You know, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit too, Daryl, because Elizabeth said something I thought that was really interesting to me. And this is something I wanted to bring up later is when Paxonary breaks off on her own. I felt like to me, Elizabeth, this was, this is Paxonarian going on journey to sort of search for meaning because she was disenchanted after the Siniavos war disenchanted with the life of the mercenary because she felt like the fighting didn't have meaning. It had become meaningless. Pretty much, yes. She was definitely searching for a different way to use her strengths. Yeah, with a a, a purpose, a a greater purpose. Is this something that maybe came out of your own military experience? I mean, I I know I've had times when I, as a veteran, I was in the Army for eight years. There were times in the Army that I felt (laughs) that I I wanted and desired a higher purpose for my uh, service, you know. I don't think it came directly out of my service. It came probably out of reading a lot of military history and a lot of military memoirs. Because mm. more than one soldier has said, I was fine with the war up until here. It was a war of defense or whatever, you know, it was a noble cause. And then all of a sudden, we were torturing prisoners and being the bad guys. Yeah. So, yeah, well, which of course has a, a much more interesting meaning. In the modern era. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, lest this show become something much more different than we originally intended. Yeah, let's get back to the story. <laughs> let's talk about the book. Uh, but we could go on about that. This is kind of all in the, the service of a point that I thought was really important to bring up, and that's world building. The Didapaxinarian creates a very compelling and interesting world. And we, we've talked about world building here on the show before because there's a lot of guys out there who are you know, DMs and they want to run a really cool game and they want to set it in a really cool world. And the thing that we always kind of stress is that a, a good way to start with world building is to start with characters and start with conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think the world of, of Paxanarian definitely has those two things in spades. But it's some of the details, I think, that even bring it more to life, which is the codes of law and the religions and the strong identity and tone of all the nations that you find. That was deliberate and probably out of my history degree. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> in fact, if I can throw this in here, if we have a little oh, space yeah. of time. Sure, Absolutely. sure. One of the things I wanted to do was create the human groups as distinct identities and cultures, and then also the non-human races as distinct identities and cultures. Mm-hmm. And for that, I have to brag on one of my professors at Rice, Dr. Lear, who wrote a book called Treason in Roman and Germanic Law. Very solid history, researched, etc. But Treason in Roman and Germanic Law is what gave me the difference between the gnomes and the dwarves. It's all based on the character traits and the cultural traits that he pointed out in that particular instance. We don't actually see very much of the dwarves in... uh... No, Excellent. you see them only really in divided allegiance. Yeah, the dwarf that goes out to Colobia uh, with right. them. That's right. That's pretty much the only example. For the most part, it's the uh, the gnomes and the elves. I think I think well, the elves also have. They're a very also interesting the dwarves at the uh, when she was training. 
too. That she, well, she right. was the one who yes. made. Yeah. She was the only one who made overtures to try to make friends with them, I believe. That's true. But we didn't see too much of them. They were kind of in the kind of background characters in a way to add a little flavor to it. It seemed like, but at the same time, it was still introducing those traits, and it was dwarves that were definitely the fit the archetype of what we think of as fantasy race, race dwarves. But it was these weren't Tolkien's dwarves. These weren't. Um, any of the dwarves from D and D, it was something were, that was completely unique. Well, they were comfortably familiar, yeah. without yeah, but they were also in, interestingly unique. They're part of the deep history that I wasn't using all of at the time. But if you at this point go back and look at uh, a story that was in, oh shoot, which book was it in? Anyway, the story is called Judgment, and it's about what happened to the dwarves when they failed to live up to their duty to a dragon. Well, the dragons, of course, are a big deal in the more recent books. Yes, they didn't show up at all except as part of the the legends in the older books. But that was deliberate. And uh, Elizabeth, please forgive us for, you know, dropping some of these details and being wrong about them. That's okay. I think think, uh, I've read uh, the deed of Paxton at least four times, but as you get older, you know, the things you think are true, it turns out to not be true. I have like all kinds of reference pages open in front of me. And even then I'm still like getting some of the names wrong. So I apologize for that. Um, in advance. Don't don't apologize. I (laughs) got a lot of things wrong when I started the new group because I had lost my reference notebooks. Oh, really? I'm still working on trying to put names to faces and I've had to go back in the book and reread about certain character descriptions to make sure that I was thinking about the correct person. So, yeah, well, (laughs) I made one of the mistakes I made in the first books because I didn't know any better was I had the clever idea of having root names in each nation that had little differences in their suffixes or their prefixes, but they were basically similar. That is total hell for copy editors. You have (laughs) Sellus, Selly, Sellets. Ugh, how can they tell which one is right? How can they tell if the continuity is right? How can I tell if the continuity is right? Yeah. And, and like I said, for me trying to figure out, okay, who is she talking about again? <laughs> yeah. Sympathies. I screwed up on that. Ah, mm-hmm. It's still a good book. Yeah. One of, the, one of the good things about the 21st century in our digital age is there are things fans will go nuts and create big Wikipedia pages and fan pages. And you actually have a really amazing page that you run. Uh, Miss Moon, that is really great. The only downside to those is if you're not careful, you can easily run into spoilers, which I did the first time I was reading through A Song of Ice and Fire. Ah. So, yeah, I, I, I accidentally <laughs> ran into That's Okay, what now? Okay, that's that guy. Let me click again. Okay, he's in this one. He's get killed in the next book. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but... But thankfully, your page is actually really well written. So if anyone's reading through the books and for the first time and they're having trouble keeping straight at the characters like Lauren is, go to Elizabeth's website and her page breaks down all the characters, all the nations, everything else. And it's really, really light on spoilers. So you won't get those. Oh, crap. That character's dead. Oh, oh, well. And what's what's the name of her website? Um, Hexworld.com. Thank you. Hexworld.com. And there's there's also a group of fans for this, is there not? Yes, there's a blog associated with it, and there's a group of fans associated with the blog. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so there you go. <laughs> people are people are welcome to come and, and join in the conversations that we have. Occasionally there are contests. 
I've got one that I need to finish doing the randomization judging on. Oh, so boy. there's a fan group for the blog for the fan group for the books. That's like Paxception right there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to talk about some of the, the, the really powerful scenes in these books because when I think back, I think, you know, I can, I, you can name a book and I can tell you like the things that I can remember as the most impactful scenes. And I think, you know, obviously we need to start with She Farmer's Daughter. So for me, the biggest, what, one of the biggest comes early on. It comes with Pax's training and she has an incident with the fellow trainee named Corin, which ends up putting her on trial for her life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Corin is one of those villains that just makes your blood boil. <laughs> Some villains are just assholes, and yeah. that guy, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, for the record, I, I am curious. I've only read uh, the first three, the the D books, so I'm kind of is he does he show up again in any of the novels, and does he get tortured some more? Please, please. <laughs> he shows up again. Yes. He Ooh, does. Okay. Anything more than that would be a spoiler, so you have to go read the rest of them. <laughs> okay. I I remember when we ran into him again, and it was. It was satisfying. Okay. It's satisfying works for me. Because <laughs> I just, I just want to see him suffer some more. Well, you know, that's the mark of a good villain, in my opinion. It's something you have a really strong emotional reaction to. And, and Corin is definitely that guy. I mean, I think, I think Elizabeth and I both had some, you know, similar service related experiences because I've, I've seen that guy in the army as well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that, I've seen that guy in the office. So, <laughs> so that, that's not a military only thing, although this there is probably true. is, it's probably more likely in the military because of just the way things are structured, but right. it's not a problem just in the office. Uh, but yeah, that, and then, that then guy. But but we have other characters that we learn of in this book as well. We learn of Arcolin and Stamel, which are some really great like examples of officers and non commissioned officers, and Duke Phelan, who is the you know patron of the 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 mercenary company that she joins. And I always thought it was really interesting. Again, we this kind of going back to the idea the uh, the idea of Paxinarian as as an asexual character. But there was always that um, I, I like the way that Elizabeth sort of led us down the path towards. Well, she looks just like his dead wife, right? Mm-hmm. And and in, in 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 many other books, we know exactly where that path would be leading. It would be leading to a romance, um, but it doesn't. It actually it's it's important and it informs a lot of her relationship with the Duke, but it doesn't actually go that way. It, it becomes it, it's. I I found it intriguing because it changed the rules on that. Yeah, he would not have had any relationship with her other than commander soldier. He's more than 20 years older than she is, and he's still really connected to Tamarian. Yes, but I think, I, I think anybody who's read the book would have had said that there was at least some interest there. Yes. Yeah. But it was, it was the interest almost more as if she were the daughter that he had lost. Because remember that his daughter and son were also killed. That's right. So I think he looks upon her as not a replacement for his daughter. But in a more fatherly, more mentor-like, more like it's, a, it's, a surrogate daughter. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's certainly possible that I I got a different read out of that, but uh, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> because again, readers, readers all contribute to to the book as they read it. I mean, you're part of it as you read it. You right. make up exactly how the characters look to you. You make up exactly what they sound like to you, right. and that's 
that's a very good thing. We should leave room in the story for the reader to participate. So that I think one thing and you think another is not bad unless you think that they were sneaking off in the bushes together. No, no, I, I, I definitely, well, certainly that did not, that definitely did not happen. Uh, and, and we were talking about why that didn't happen is there's a number of reasons, but you know, amongst them is that she just is really interested in that kind of thing. Now, I don't have any military experience personally, but there was one thing that seemed to happen during uh, the scenes early on when she's with the Duke's company. And I kind of wanted to ask both of you who have military experience if this is something that's real or something I read into it and maybe I'm getting very similar to it that isn't there. But one of the things that I noticed is that Pax's first bond wasn't with anyone else. It was with her basically drill sergeant, her yeah, training scale. master. Yes. And then it moved on. And as she started moving up the ranks, that's when she started having more interaction with the officers and the Duke himself. And that's when that relationship started happening. Before then, it was just a pure loyalty to someone I've seen once, and then it comes into an actual personal relationship. That's pretty much how it goes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Which is, you know, another, you you brought up the right word, verisimilitude. It adds to that idea that the, the military feels real. And, of course, the uh, the other really impactful scene for me is the whole uh, Sinyava's War arc where Pax kind of discovers her potential but also gets to see the dark side of of, of war. Uh, you know, gets to see, well, there's a lot of things that go wrong in seeing how this war, and it, it, it makes it where it's obviously not a, war is not uh, a glorious thing. I, right? I, it is a sometimes necessary thing, but it is an ugly and, and brutal in, in many ways. It's a necessary evil. I guess that's the best way to put it. Uh, maybe. Clint Black would love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I liked about that was, um, after uh, they go and retake uh, the the keep, pretty much, and then they start chasing him, it feels like there there's something that's been going viral that's uh, tabletop gaming related, where it's about the most frustrating villain anyone's ever run into. The guy's name, the villain's name is Shane, and he was like power behind the throne. But the problem was he kept escaping. His entire idea was he always got away and left them to clean up the messes he made. And forced them to start thinking outside the box to actually trap him so he couldn't escape. And that's what that felt like that entire campaign. It's like, okay, we're going to rush into this city and crap, he's already left. We're going to rush into this fort. Oh, crap, he's already left. And I thought, yeah, I thought you, that was really intriguing. I was kind of like, come on, come on. And then when you finally get him, it's just so cathartic. I um, noticed this very cat and mouse. I had been reading a lot of Civil War history. And there are portions of the Civil War, if you read Sherman's memoirs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like that. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the grinding, the grindingness of the long chase, the yeah. the exhaustion, the ugliness, and just the sheer, oh no, not again! <laughs> you know, we just we just can't step this out. We can't catch Lee, for instance. We can't catch this other Confederate commander. And eventually, they're not going to win. But in the meantime, it just drags on and on and on. Oh yeah, yeah. I just I recently watched the. Uh, uh, Ken Burns Civil War series. Uh, so yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about there. Uh, well, that takes us through most of Sheep Farmer's Daughter. Uh, let's talk about, now this is a book, I don't think Lauren, you're not well, into this one yet. No, no, there's, uh, there's one other really important oh. scene in Sheep Farmer's Daughter. It's one of the last scenes, I believe. Well, I read the Omnibus edition, so I'm not sure where stuff falls exactly in terms of books, but I think it's one of the last ones. It is where Paxnerian and the Duke actually kind of butt heads for the first time oh that's right it's yes. what to do with them once they've caught him yeah yeah she she 
for the first time questions her her commander's judgment. And she takes a strong moral stand. Basi- again, tying it back to tabletop gaming, it's basically the what do we do with these baby goblins question. And she answers it in a brilliant way. It's we have a prisoner that we know is evil, that's guilty of these crimes. Should we execute him? And she says no and gives very compelling reasons for why not. What she's actually saying no to is not killing him, but torturing him. Oh. Yeah, because it's, uh, it's in a war, it's, you know, reasonable to kill the enemy, but mm-hmm. yeah, to torture, bad. The Duke wants to torture him because he tortured people in the company when he captured them at Dwarf Watch. That's right. And so the Duke wants to torture him. And Pax says no. And this is, you're right, this is the first time that she has acted in any way that might be considered disloyal. She's had to grow past her initial naive loyalty to develop a moral compass of her own. And it's still a very weak moral compass. <laughs> Sorry, but it's there. I, I apologize for laughing right now, but I'm just watching Lauren. Apparently, I found the exact scene in the book she's almost getting to because she's just like freaking out because now she knows no, how it is. No, I'm past that. Oh, oh, okay. I'm where they've already seen. She's received the uh, amulet of Gerd from, oh, uh, Cannon? I want to yeah. say her name is. And, uh, it's having a response to her and yeah. she's been told to take it to one of the, uh, Finn Paneer. Yeah. Yeah. She's, uh, she, this is the first time that the inklings of the paladin powers go talk to the marshals. Yeah. So, yeah. And okay. I'm just like, so I've, I've got that pretty set in my mind. I was like, okay, I know that's going to happen now, I think. But I, I try not to think too far ahead in the books, but now I'm getting ideas. Now I'm just, I'm looking at the Kindle right now going, I want to pick it up. I want to pick it up. I want to pick it up. So. Well, you know, this moment is really interesting for me because again, to tie it back to gaming, like, you know, you don't, a a lot of times when we make a character and play in a role playing game, that character kind of feels like they've always been there, right? They, they've like, maybe I wasn't born a paladin, but I've kind of been a paladin for a really long time. And I like, I like the fact that that this book sort of gives you a different perspective on it. This book is like, no, no, but you may, you may not be a paladin yet. You may just be thinking you, you might have that kind of potential. Or even if you, if you are a paladin, you could have had all kinds of adventures before you even, you know, I'm gonna go picked complete, up the mantle. I'm going to go complete gamers on this. It really reminds me of a character that I played in a game that I didn't really get. To, we only did about three or four sessions of, so we didn't get to really explore it, but it was, <clears throat> the idea was, this character started out a fighter, but was going to become a paladin. And that might be one of the reasons why I tight, like, latched onto the series so hard when I read it. And like, <laughs> it's, this is the character I wanted to play. You never got a chance because the campaign didn't get off the grounds. But I will say that Baxing Harrion is a hell of a lot better than any character I could have played. I'll tell you that right now. Finding the correct contact lenses and the perfect frames for the fashionably nerdtastic can be a hassle in the big box stores, so that's why I use AC Lens. From the most fashionable frames and hard-to-find prescription contact lenses to the perfect contacts for your next cosplay, AC Lens has all the bases covered at your fingertips without the hassle of leaving the game table. Just go to gamerstavern.org slash AC Lens, L-E-N-S. They have amazing offers, including up to $300 in savings for a year's supply of contact lenses and with a 100% satisfaction guarantee, what's not to like? There's even a special deal for Gamers Tavern listeners, $5 off any contact lens order of $50 or more. They have everything you need to keep your eyes healthy and happy. So check out GamersTavern.org slash Lens today for all your eye care needs. 
And we're back with the Gamers Tavern speaking with author Elizabeth Moon about her books, The Deed of Paxinarian. And we, we just got done talking about the first in the trilogy, which is Sheep Farmer's Daughter. And now we're talking about Divided Allegiance. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this is this is the one I think I, I enjoyed, again, for some of the gaming uh, linkage. Uh, we, we're, we're introduced to a character called Arvid Semenson, who is a thief. And he's, you know, very much that kind of archetypical, I think, in, in many ways. Thiefy uh, thief. Th- you know, the thief you think of when you look at the thief in the player's handbook. You know what I mean? Although he insists he's a thief enforcer, he's not really a thief. <laughs> Thieves are lower class than he is. Of course. I'm not, I'm not a thief. I am a dexterity-based fighter that wears leather armor. Thank you very much. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's one thing that always bugged me is why would a thief run around saying they're a thief? Yeah, well, Arvid doesn't, which is, I mean, he, exactly. he kind of sort of does, but he kind of doesn't either. But again, it's really interesting. Yeah, you know, this character, of course, uh, gets focused on again in the later novels as well, which uh, is something I love. But when we're introduced to him in Divided Allegiance, he's very much a thief. And this is, again, still during time when Paxton was sort of wandering on around on her own. And I think Arvid is, again, one of those great characters kind of showcases um, some of Paxonarian's naivete in a way. He, he is a man of the world. He is a sophisticate as far as he's concerned. And well, he, he loves going out in the country to these little <laughs> small towns, showing off and trying to steal girls from the local yokels. And they get involved in an, in an adventure together, which, I mean, there's, there's a couple of times in these novels uh, where it feels very much like a quest, an adventure. It feels like something you would sit down at a table and play. Um, the first, of course, being the, uh, the elf barrow with uh, Simeon. And then the second one being the uh, adventure with Arvid to rescue the villagers from the uh, – is, is it a temple of Arch- Archaia? Archaia? Akria. Akria. Okay, so I can't pronounce it. <laughs> well, who could probably? I mean, there's probably a dozen ways to pronounce it, but that's how I pronounce it. Right. What's, uh, what's, yeah, he's What's the he's old Ari Salvatore naming method? Mash your hand on the keyboard and hope you get enough vowels. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Elizabeth, would you agree with me that this, this kind of feels like a D&D type adventure where they go and, and rescue the villagers? Yeah, it probably does. I needed uh, something fairly small that would be that would yield something that was plot relevant, but that was not a huge giant adventure because I had other stuff ahead for her. Mm-hmm. And it, so that makes it about a playable size, I think. Yeah. This is also the first book where we get to see her training with the Paladins of Gerd, if I'm not mistaken. Or does yes. that come in Othigal? No, that's this is Devedili. Okay, I'm I'm correct. Yeah. All right. Yeah, she is rewarded for the successes that she had in the town by being offered a chance to go and train as a knight. Correct. In, in Finpanir. And this is where the the thing with the ring comes in that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, the first ring actually goes to the Kuakgan in that village. Yes, and the, well, she she admits to him that she has abused power by using it to train the horse and that she's kept it secret. And so she gives it up to That's him. Right. It was a wonderful scene. That's uh, actually the whole interplay with her and the, and the Kwakgani is amazing. And, and I love that this actually plays in later with the understanding of religion because we're told that, and, and this is a, again, big spoiler, but we're told that she's going to be a paladin of Gerd, that her patron is Gerd, that, you know, this is all about her and, and her relationship with the religion of Gerd. Uh, the Gerdsman and then the, the Gerdish, the, the Granges, whatever you want to say about that. Of course, later on, we learn that she's actually a paladin of, of the High Lord. 
which is interesting because it, it this is where she's working with a different religion, one that's actually sort of antagonistic with the Gurdish and for the most part. I actually had a different interpretation when I read the book. It wasn't to me that she was of it was more um that she was a paladin of not a specific deity, but a paladin of just the entire embodiment of the ideals of a paladin. Well, that may, you know, that may be so true, it's but I, not, I mean, the so characters the religion, in the book are, yeah. are assuming that she's going to be Gurdish. That's what I mean. Well, yeah, th- th- that is firmly in there. She's going to train at the, te- the big temple of Gurd, but the idea of what she ends up becoming is more of a general, I'm just a really good, awesome person, and I have special powers because I'm so good and awesome. And not in a dismissive way of that. It's literally, she is that good and that awesome that she deserves <laughs> these powers. Well, they made an interesting change in Dungeons and Dragons where they allowed paladins to be representations of ideals uh, in the later edition. And I always saw that specific change as one that I thought really was like, if you want, if you want to play as, as a type of Paxinarian type paladin, this is a way to go, <laughs> which I thought was neat. But yeah, the, the interplay with her in the Quagani where she gives up the ring, this is a thing that happens here. And then we get to possibly the most interesting well, bit of the book. Before that, the uh, the interaction with the Quagani, it was just so amazing to me because it's the relationship between the two of them started yes. off so it was it started off slightly antagonistic in a way. And then it just evolved because she was just it seemed like to me she was just completely put off by his druidic otherworldliness and then slowly start to see the person behind all the stuff and that was just a really great slow burn kind of character development moment for me where she realizes that and i think it was because of her time with the elves that she realized that again we're skipping ahead a lot but that was one of those moments where she starts to realize it's not what someone says it's what they do and who they are yes agreed and I agree too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if she's sitting here going, "You're getting it wrong. You're getting it wrong." <laughs> oh no, because <laughs> that is something I wanted to ask you about. Was our first introduction way back in Sheep Farmer's Daughter to the religion of Gerd is from a very zealous recruit, isn't it? Yeah, it's one. Yeah. Of the, it's one of the other recruits, and she is very, very. Oh, you need to worship Gerd. Gerd is awesome. You need to worship Gerd. Here's all about Gerd, and Gerd is great, and Gerd is good, and worship Gerd. And it's like really <laughs> cloying, and you're just wanting to just say, seriously, cut it. Out. Well, I always wondered. I always wondered about this too because uh, I I know that Elizabeth spent a lot of their time in Texas, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I, I'm curious if this has anything to do with uh, <laughs> sort of the religious makeup of that particular state. So uh, it has to do with the variety of religious behaviors that go in almost any religion. There are narrow-minded people in every religion, and there are more broad-minded people in every religion. So I was exposed to both of them down on the border in a variety of religions, Catholicism, (laughs) Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalians, you know, I could see this, I grew up with it. For that reason, I think, when I wanted to write about and include religions and chose deliberately not to use Christianity, as some people have done, um... I wanted to show the range of behaviors that exist within one and how they work out in human relationships. And the thing I love about that is the overzealous, I'm going to try the evangelical uh, GERD follower wasn't a bad person. They were just 
a little annoying and cloying <laughs> about it. They were they were a good person, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're that guy who always and, tries to get. You as someone time. who's grown who grew up in Southeast Texas himself, I have <laughs> run to that person a lot myself. So yeah, I think I think most of us have, and I think we've most of us have also run into people who are much more relaxed about it it doesn't mean that they don't have strong beliefs but they aren't trying to force them on everybody else exactly and we see a lot of those examples in the books as well of course and i just wonder what was there a reason behind the choice to put the again i'm using cloying and annoying one right up front and then later on show us the examples of the more oh yeah we're not all like we're not all evangelical like that we just we follow the him and try to lead by example and hope well, like, other well, people gives- will see the light it gives Paxonarian doubts and it, and it lets her yeah. Uh, yeah. sort of hesitate when offered, you know, this this thing that other people are like, well, of course you should do it. That's what I thought was a, it was is sort of a foundation for that. Her her very independence that led her to leave home makes her resist being pushed unless it's something that she chooses. Like she didn't mind being pushed by her sergeant, but she was not going to be pushed by somebody about anything else. So putting that early showed that that she was not going to be easily pushed around. She was not going to be an easy convert. She was going to have doubts. She was going to have resistance. Once she met Canna, and Canna was not like that, she began to think less harshly of the Gurdish religion. But she still wasn't ready to commit to anything for quite a long time. Now, the part I wanted to talk about, though, is in Divided Allegiance, is actually the part where she is cursed where Paxonarian mm-hmm. is cursed and she becomes a coward and it's really it's in some ways it's tough to read because you love this character you really mm-hmm. come to know this character and want to root for her she is the protagonist and it's hard to see her go through something like this but at the same time it's fascinating uh, because it, you get to see through her eyes how, how other people respond to that I thought it and, was a great portrayal of uh, post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder well, yes. that's, that's one way to look at it too. Yeah. Is, is PTSD. Um, but specifically it made her very fearful. And the reason for this, and I, I love this. I love the fact that it builds up to this big reveal. The, the reason for this is because one of the things that paladins do is they, they deal with, they, they are resistant to fear. They kind of exemplify courage. And the way that it's explained is that Paxonarian, in order to become that, that exemplar of what courage is, she had to know and understand what fear is, mm-hmm. what it's like to be fearful, what it's like to be a coward. Because without that, I mean, this, this kind of goes back to that, you know, like, uh, in the movie, the Captain America movie, you know, we, we chose a weak man because he would, un- he would understand the value of strength, right? And with, uh, always with know how to protect who needs protecting. Yeah. Yeah. She, she gets that understanding of what makes people fearful and, and, and it, it really enhances that whole, Paladins are the the courageous ones bit, and I, I I loved it. It was it was fantastic for me. It was it was the most memorable thing from Divided Allegiance, in my opinion, was that series of events. And of course, one of the best parts is, of course, uh, she gets to revisit the Quatgani during this period. Well, I thought that was uh, the beginning of That's the, the Oath of book. Gold. That's Oath of Gold. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, Oath, of, I, Oath of Gold. Uh, listen, I'm a host. I'm trying <laughs> to segue. <laughs> All right. So Divided Allegiance was you're, the downer you're killing, ending you're for the, the segue. <laughs> Divided Allegiance was the Empire Strikes Back ending, and then we go yes. into Oath of Gold. Right, which is where my segue was leading us to. <laughs> and you would not believe how many 
letters and phone calls I got when the books first came out as three separate books. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> and people were stuck at the end of the second one. They were not happy readers. They were not happy readers at all. But I had written the thing all as one, and I had to cut it up because, Whoa. you know, a many thousand page book not going to get published if it's your first novel. Only people who have been many times published can get away with that, and I'm not one of them even. But I had to find a place to break it, and that's the only place within about 150 pages on either side of it that you could break it. I thought it was the perfect spot to end because, again, it gives that trilogy feel to it. It's the first one is her finding her independence. The second one is her kind of exploring that independence, but and learning, and learning the consequences, consequences yeah. of having to make her own choices. And then the, the end result is the almost worst case scenario for that. And then the third book is all about climbing back out of it and the redemption thereof. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I don't, I never saw Pax as a redemption story. I mean, she's, she never really did anything that we needed to see her be redeemed for. Redemption's the wrong word, but, but it is, it is a really interesting arc of, of a character that does change and ends up in a different place at the end of each book than where she started, which is, there's many other authors of, of whom I could name where that is not true of their main characters. <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, but Oath of Gold. So let's talk about Oath of Gold. Now this is, the climax, uh, well, it's, it's the, the climactic volume, you might say, of the trilogy. Uh, and this is where we talk about the, the PTSD and she gets to sort of be, uh, she gets to revisit the Quagani. And I, I, it's, it's wrong to say that she's cured. It's, it's more to say that the curse is lifted and she learns, you know, that, that that's where she kind of gains a new understanding of herself, I would it's, say. I thought it was, very reminiscent of, and again, this is my PTSD is strong in my head is I have, I've had mild PTSD from some of the, like the hurricane came through. So that's where I, maybe that's me impressing on the character or something that's not there, but that ends, uh, well, if, the, if only we had the author here to ask. Well, I know, but I'm, I'm giving, I'm giving <laughs> my, I'm giving my unbiased opinion first before she can come and say, Oh no, you're completely wrong. I don't know where you got that from, <laughs> but I thought that, uh, that and the sessions with the Kukan were, were basically, it reminded me a lot of therapy. Yes. It was very, very Certainly psychology therapy. based, mo almost modern style therapy. Like you talk through everything, a little bit Freudian Union in the terms of how it was handled. And basically it was, you're sitting in the room while she's laying on the couch. Tell me about your mother. Exactly. Not quite. Not quite. I don't not, know. Not quite uh, that I, Freudian, but. No, I didn't see it. I, I, their relationship, her relationship with the Quagani, I didn't see as a doctor patient. It was, this is where I think we get to see the rewards of her actions earlier, where she had been honest and clear and, you know, gained a new friend. And again, this is, you know, about her understanding of the religion as well, you know, of, of understanding that they, they offer different things than the Gertzman do, mm -hmm. which is, again, I feel it's an important from a world building standpoint as well as character one. So, uh, Miss Moon, do you want to sit here and tell me how completely utterly wrong I am? Or? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. At the time, I didn't know as much about PTSD as I learned later. Realize I wrote this in the early 80s, and the topic of PTSD was not widely known or talked about or written about at that time. It definitely, there's a therapeutic thing to it. The Kuakani are 
nature-based healers. That's their primary duty, is to sustain healthy life. So when they find somebody who is suicidal, who they know and saw potential in, they're going to try to intervene and help that person heal. But the healing has to come from inside. They, As he's pointed out for some of the other creatures that he talks to her about, they each have their own nature. And he's not going to make somebody different from what they really are. Which is a, a counterpoint to her training with the Marshal General. Yes. Where, where that was kind of, that was kind of where they were going with that is they were turning her into someone else. Yes. And when they, when they did the psychic surgery, let's say, mm-hmm. that tried to remove the evil and, and let her heal and she didn't heal, uh, they were trying to make her into the Gerdsman, the perfect Gerdsman type of person. And it didn't work. It didn't work in the early training, and it didn't work in the cure, although it did remove what nothing else could probably have removed, which was that uh, bitterness, that anger that had been implanted in her during her captivity. So it's kind of like treating the body but not treating the mind or the spirit uh, or whatever you want to yeah, call it. They, they were trying to treat, I think, the mind and spirit, but they didn't get the whole package, and they did damage. And she knew they might do damage. But partly her fear of the damage, her her incorrect belief that to be brave you have to feel brave, which was part of her. She'd always been a very bold person, and so she thought, if I don't feel brave, if I feel scared, then it means I've lost all my courage. And to the Kuakgan, of course, courage is part of what keeps you alive. It is a life fear. Force. Fear is what keeps you alive, too. <laughs> there are times that fear keeps you alive, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not going where you should go. But but what he's telling her is that everything that is alive has a measure of courage in the life force because it's very easy to die. It's really fantastically easy to jump off a cliff or shoot yourself or stab yourself. What's hard is to keep going. I always saw that as as you know as what you're saying, but I also to me the thing I always like to, to take take away from that was that you know courage isn't not being fearless. Courage is what you do in spite of being afraid. Yes, absolutely. And that's absolutely. what I thought was was the really great yes. thing out of that. And yes, I also thought the big split between what the guards were trying, the guardsmen were trying to do to make packs better uh, versus what the going out. I'm just sorry. Sorry? Kuak gone. Kuak gone. Kuak gone. Okay. Versus what the Kuak gone were doing uh, was, it was very much the idea of how to teach someone two different schools. One is to tell someone what to do. The other one is Mm -hmm. to show them what to do. Uh, The Kuak gone was very much on the show side of things. It wasn't, okay, we've now gotten you to the point where you can kind of function you're able to go to the tavern and have dinner now let's put you with these elf rangers for a while and let you help them out and let them show you their way or let's go to versus the girls which is okay uh this is what you need to do in order to get better you have to do this 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 and yeah. this and yeah. you have to <laughs> yeah 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 very good <laughs> oh okay I, I got the gold wow. star awesome you, do. you totally do <laughs> Now, uh, the, I, we have not a whole lot of time left, so I want to kind of skip to just the end bit of Othergold before we get into the, uh, the last parts. 
Um, Daryl, is there you? Do you or Laura have anything else you want to jump into on Ortho Gold before I go there? Or? Uh, she hasn't uh, gotten that far. I haven't yet, gotten that far. Like I said, I'm just sitting here, like looking at the Kindle, going, "I'll read okay. it in a minute. I'll read it <laughs> well, in a minute." Well, the next part is going to be kind of hard to talk about yeah. without um, spoiling ma- massively. So, yeah, and I, I want to reiterate: this is probably one of the ones we were talking about earlier when we mentioned uh, before the broadcast. I brought up trigger warnings. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, I've got to say though that the way this whole thing was handled was handled. I think brilliantly. So I, I thought it was absolutely amazing the entire thing through. So I'm going to put that up forward. Um, if you are someone who is t- sensitive to things like torture or violence, this is the point of the podcast. We want to skip a few minutes and yeah. go forward. It's, but, it's going to be hard to hear about this. Yeah. But so, it's one of the defining moments for the character, in my opinion. Well, it is. It's, it's a huge. Okay. So we're talking about the, the ending of Oath of Gold. There is. This character, Paxinarian, who we've discussed how much we love and how much we've enjoyed watching her change and overcome these horrible things that have happened to her and overcome and learn new things. And at this point, she has become a, a full-fledged paladin. She, like, well, shining armor and power and everything. Well, you know, she and has. She, she has, but... But, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fair to say she's... I, I call her a proto-paladin at this point. You know, she's... I say she's, she's, a, she's a low-level fighter paladin at this point. You, but... how, however you want to put it is fine, but she's... I don't think she's quite taking that final step, which is which is kind of what this is about. But yeah, this it, is... The, Elizabeth can certainly the final The final test. Wrong. But, but what happens is she gets... She gets involved with Arvid, and there's a uh, a thing about uh, the uh, the Archean Ar- Archaeans, <laughs> you know, the servants of this evil goddess, <laughs> and they end up capturing Taxinarian. And it's not just it, it's one of those scenes where, again, in many other books, you know, there's a lot of lead up that kind of makes you imagine that someone will ride in and save her at the last moment. Only that doesn't really happen. Yeah, they the the the, the servants of this evil goddess have been getting pissed about the things that our Paxinarians have been doing and they, they take it out on her. They torture her. And I, they, I, I do want to say one thing about this, this point it's I think it's absolutely one of my favorite things is the whole thing about uh Paxinarian and forgive me if I'm kind of stepping into some kind of rewording what you said earlier, uh, Elizabeth, but it's a concept in gaming called lawful stupid, which mm-hmm. is you're playing a lawful good character to almost a cartoonish, perspective and being stupid in order to try to fit into that and at this point in time i think is when the bad guys go into what's called chaotic stupid or evil stupid where they are given the choice between we can go intercept the king which is our entire goal or we can torture this paladin for a couple of days hey let's torture the paladin for a couple of days well it makes and sense it, it, it makes sense in the context of the thing yeah i was gonna say were- but it makes total sense that they would do this it's one of those um, we really should do this other thing, but no, we need well, to do our, this see, thing the, to be ourselves. The church, the church of this particular evil goddess, it's, it's, it has to do with scheming and personal advancement. And there's a very good reason for them to have chosen to rather to debauch themselves with their captive. Exactly. Than to go accomplish an actual goal because the, 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 the church of this evil goddess. And again, Elizabeth can step in here if we're completely off base, but to me, it always seemed like they were more about doing things that they enjoy and less about actually accomplishing tasks. You know what I mean? They were also trying to get converts too. I think they, they well, had this, people. Well, this, was a, this was supposed to be an example. This was like the yeah. look, we have captured one of the champions of the enemy. We're going to show you what happens when you are a champion of the enemy. 
and it's hard to read, man. I mean, it, it, I don't want to, I want to stress just to the listeners, this is a dark chapter. It, Elizabeth does not, she doesn't get explicit, but she doesn't hold back on telling you I'm, what's happening. I'm going to, Pax is, Pax is violated. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to, I'm going to use the R word. Uh, rape is involved, but at this point in time, that's actually one of the lesser evils that they put her through. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's just, I was going to say, they, they violate her just about every way you can. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's hard to read. Now, the thing about this, this scene, and, and you, some listeners may be questioning, why are you lingering on this <laughs> thing if it's so horrible? It's a catalyst for change. And it's a catalyst for change, not just for Paxinarian, but it changes, it changes Arvid Simonson, this guy, this thief that she had been working with. It actually, this is the moment where he decides he is no longer the man he was because he sees her go through this and he, you know, realizes that he is in some way responsible for this. Uh, it changes the people actually, watching. It changes the, the, the church of this evil goddess because they also start to question. Cause again, this was all, a yeah. lot of this was theater. It was put on in an arena with like yeah. grandstands and they were bringing people in. It's like, it watch us break this person. And she's just sitting there. It's like, yeah. Gerd will punish you, but be merciful after every single torture she goes through. Yeah. And they start and it, it's, like uh, it starts to actually it snowballs and everyone's just yeah. like oh god what the hell is wrong with Be- us because of the way that pax endures it changes the whole character and tone and the important thing is guys it, set up. it isn't like she's just sitting back and doing it she gave her word and she is keeping her word it's she like, has it's, to yeah, she has to about, she yeah. vowed to was a uh, three days and nights i think yeah, she had to submit to whatever they wanted for three days and nights in order to let these other people live and get free. And it was to buy time for the rightful the king, heir right? to yeah. get and claim his throne. And again, so, Elizabeth, you can jump in any time. We're, we're rambling so right now because this actually is powerful. Pause. Let's pause and ask her right now. Like, how how far afield have we wandered on this? Only a little afield. <laughs> uh, I will say that this was the hardest thing to write. It, I didn't want to write it. I wanted to just say, oh, by the way, they tortured her for several days and then everything was okay. But that obviously is a cop-out. The first, no, probably about the third draft of it, I sent to uh, Judy Tarr and asked her to read it. And she said, it's a cop-out. You can't do it this way. Either take it out or rewrite it. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go through every single bit of this, aren't I? <laughs> and I did. And I, I did have to. I had to sit there and be in point of view as I wrote it, which was not fun. On the other hand, uh, it was what made it work when I figured out how she actually thought about it, and how she felt about it, of course, was a great deal of pain, but how she actually thought about it, how she actually negotiated within herself how to react and how it would work. She didn't know if she was going to live or die. She actually expected to die. And she was okay with that by that time. But she didn't, obviously. Well, <laughs> Since that's, there's more books that have her in them. Yeah, well, the catalyst for change, I mean, it's, it's, it's not... We, we can make the listeners maybe a little happier by saying what happens in the end is she is okay. Oh. And that she, her body is essentially healed it's, and she becomes oh, a I, true I, paladin of the High Lord. I, th- I thought that scene very powerful. And again, male, maybe different perspective, but it put the other scenes in perspective. She endured, she endured, she endured, and then she seemed to die and they claim triumph and 
everyone around is like, um, really, this was your triumph? And then she just, that is when the paladin comes out, heals everything. It's like, oh, you thought you won. Well, screw you. Well, this is, I mean, I, that, it, it kind of, it, it gives meaning to this horrible scene. I know. Because it becomes, it becomes a catalyst for change and it becomes clear that this was crossing the a threshold. way for the gods. Yeah. It was, a, it was a way for also the gods to kind of make it clear that this church had overstepped and that there was such a thing as something better. Justice. Yeah. There, there is justice. There is something better. It's not easy. It's, there is no cheap grace. Right. But there is grace. And that was, that was what I was trying for. It, as a matter of fact, I had to write two other stories that were not in the book because they would have unbalanced the book to satisfy myself after writing the horrible torture scene and even the healing scene. Um, I had to write the story of the boy, the little boy right. that mm-hmm. was beaten. And I had to write this part of the story of Baranyi that I hadn't written. Now, that has never been published. The little boy's story has been published. But I had to really understand Botterney. Why was she so bitter? Why was she so determined that even after Pax had gone through the torture, that she wanted to kill her and destroy her body? That that made no sense to me initially. Now it does. But that's not a story that I will ever publish. <laughs> okay. It's, it's too dark for me. Uh, after what I've written, you may wonder that I can say that about anything, but I can. Well, the, the thing about this this final scene, and I think that this is really the last bit I want to talk about. It really is just it, it's it's that tunnel you go through to emerge on the other side stronger. It's it's the final challenge that Pax goes through before she becomes what she had always been, been in, intended to be, which is a hero. You know, which is a a champion of of the ideals that she believed in. And that was the dream she had when she left home, but she had no idea what it was going to cost to get there. I always wanted to see, just just as a, a thing, because I have you on the show here and I'm a super fan, and I've read this book like <laughs> a billion times, um, I really have to say I've always wanted to sort of be a fly on the wall in The Three Furs when her sword comes back and yeah. see what happens there. I, I always wanted to sort of see the family react or see maybe, you know, one of her sisters be inspired or something along those lines. I don't know. I, I, I've always wanted to see that. I know you may not ever write it. I don't, it's, it's fine, but that's. I've tried to write it. I oh, have really? tried to write it because I wanted to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and the only way I could see things is to write them. Okay. So I have tried. I know that the person who brings it is not wearing girdish blue, but is wearing white. I don't know the significance of that for sure. But I know that, that as he's coming up the hill from, actually the whole trail up from Rocky Ford into Three Furs, uh, people start looking because here's this person on a gray horse dressed in white with a couple of swords. I mean, he's got his own sword and then he's got her sword and goes on through Three Furs and people start following. So when they get up to Pax's house, there's like crowd. There's a little, well, not a big crowd because it's three it's, is a very tiny village. But still, but, it's like that's got to be the most exciting thing that's happened there for a oh, while. Yeah. It's, you know, aside it's from like, harvest season, it's like, what the hell <laughs> well, is this guy doing this here? A stranger, a stranger. Let's follow stranger, him and find out what he's doing. Yeah, going up there, you know about those people. You know, they've heard <laughs> a few things about Pax, but they haven't heard the whole story. So he gets up there, and the last thing that I can see, quote unquote, air quotes is that 
her father comes out of the house. That's it. Okay. <laughs> her father's standing there. The guy is on the horse. Yeah. This one sword belted at his side and the other one he's got now in his hands. What the heck is that all about? Why won't you let me write the rest of it? <laughs> I want to write the rest of it. If, if you do, I just want to tell you, I would be the first guy, and you know, you you would make me the suit, and probably a, a ton of fans. Second. Happy. Okay, so there's there you got three, yeah, two people in line already for that book. <laughs> well, if I do get it written, it will probably go into one of the uh, Pax story ebooks. You know, the first one's out now. So, uh, is that the? Uh, Deeds of Honor. Deeds of Honor. I I have not read that one yet either, actually. So that's a, a new, new pack story. I've got to track that down. Yeah. So I got to say okay. the only the only reason I the only reason why those the rest of the books have kind of gone to the I'll get to those in just a moment is they didn't focus on packs Paxanarian, yeah. and knowing there's another story that focuses on Paxanarian, clomp. I want that. Give me now. Well, that, that, that would uh, that would almost jump a Jim Butcher novel for me, and to say that is the <laughs> highest praise I have to give because I am the biggest Jim Butcher fanboy ever. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, I. They're not all Pax stories; they are Pax World stories, uh, mostly connected to the new group of books. Not entirely. Which I think Daryl should read those too. Anyway. Oh, they, they are definitely on my list. It's one of those I just haven't had time. It was only about three or four months ago. And by the way, if you're wanting an ex, one of those examples where it's maybe Ross is looking with rose-tinted lenses is something he read when he was a youth and they were so awesome then. No, I read these like a couple of months ago when I'm in my 30s and these books are still that amazing. So this that is, is so this, nice of you. This is, this yeah. is not just the, I read something when I was a kid and I'm really in love with it. But no, it, these books are amazing. Yeah, that's that's exactly what happened though. Is I did read them 23 years ago. So yeah, and and <laughs> Ross is actually the one who turned me on to him. He talked about him on the show, and I'm like, what is this thing? And I researched. I'm like, okay, I must read this thing. And I started reading, and then uh, two days later, and about three hours of sleep. <laughs> Yeah. That is so flattering. It <laughs> makes a writer very, very happy to know that they have cost somebody sleep. Oh, you, uh, well, Daryl has some things he wants to talk about with regards to this trilogy, uh, specifically about its relationship to gaming. I think it's obvious that these are some great stories that have been inspired by gaming, which I, I love that. I love that our hobby that we all enjoy so much. Maybe not so much anymore for Elizabeth, but you know the the games that we've all at least tried and enjoyed at, at certain points in our life uh, become an inspiration uh, for fantastic stories like this. And the the main one I'm wanting to talk about is one of my favorite adventure modules of all time, which is T1, the first section of the Temple of Elemental Evil called the Village, the Village of, of Hamlet, Hamlet, which, if you read Divide Divided Allegiance, it seems very inspired by that module and i was kind of wanting to get your imp input on that uh how that came about and why you chose that for your inspiration because it's well maybe it, she didn't maybe she didn't maybe it's parallel development i know but it, it, give me give me the name of that module again village, village of hamlet of hamlet h-o-m-m-l-e-t oh okay okay yeah that is one that my husband dm'd so that's why it sounds, that's why it seems familiar to you. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I, I made changes to it. Mm -hmm. Oh no, nobody's accusing you of copying but, it directly. No, that's, just... that's okay. I'm not, I'm not trying to be snarky about it, <laughs> but I made some changes to it because 
because of my history degree, when I studied ancient medieval history primarily, there were things that I thought needed to be in a village like that that weren't there. And there were things that I thought weren't right for historically speaking. So I squished things around some. <laughs> and I've got to say, but, yeah, I, I'm a huge the, fan of that to the point where I went through and did a line by line edit to convert it to the new edition of D&D. And even <laughs> I didn't catch that it was the Village of Hamlet adventure in the Moat House until I was reading online after I read the books. And it's like, oh, hey, by the way, TV Trope says this is the Village of Hamlet. I'm like, wait, what? Huh? Oh, oh my God. So, so when I say, so I'm saying inspired by specifically. Yeah. He had done a couple of adventures in that area, DM'd a couple of them that he made up that one of them in particular, and I can't, of course, now it's just a few years in between. I can't remember all the details of why I said, huh, I think I want to use that in the book. Yeah. There's, because there's, it, there's it, a TV it, tropes page. It's just fantastic. Yep. <laughs> It filled the it filled the need for what I the experience I wanted her to have. She needed certain experiences before she got to Finn Paneer to set her up for that. So that she was thinking she was even further along, more experienced than she was. She stayed naive about as long as you probably can, but then I was a fairly naive person for years. So, <laughs> you know, people would kid me about it and I thought, okay, you know. I guess you can just not notice things. I'm 35 the, uh, the, and I still pretty feel feel pretty naive at times. Uh, by so. the way, that uh, overzealous character we were talking about earlier—that's Effa. Ah, that's, that's her I mean. name. Yes, that's right. She dies. Mm. <laughs> yes, she does. That was that was not as any kind of punishment for being overzealous. It was the fact that she was just that little bit slower than some of the others. Okay, so Daryl, you wanted to talk about the village Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other things that are gaming-wise that come out of or are related to the Dita Paxonarian? Like I said, there are a couple of novels and TV shows that I always use as examples to my players when they're going into a game. Uh, For example, Shadowrun, I always show new Shadowrun players the TV show Leverage. Uh, When it comes to Rogues, I almost always go to the Gentleman Bastard series of books. Yeah. Scott Lynch. Yep. And there is nothing better for Paladins, in my opinion, than the Dita Paxinarian. Lawful good done right. Exactly. It is that's yes. yeah, I, I can't I, say I anything more. It is just perfect for we have what a together, should be. We, together we have something like 70 years of uh role-playing game experience under our belt. So uh yeah we when we say that the authoritative D D paladin done right is Paxinarian, I think that's pretty I, I think that's something you could put on your website and be, you know, and, and, and be real with. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Every time she takes charge in a situation, it's not, hi, I'm deadly do right. And I'm here to be perfect and good. <laughs> and everything I say is law. And if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to smite you. No, it is. This is what you should do because it's the right thing to do. And here's why it's the right thing to do. It brings out that charisma aspect of the things it's, it, she leads by example Absolutely. so much in the books. And could, it's, I, mm-hmm. could I toss in a little bit about something I just remembered? I should have said it earlier. Mm-hmm. A couple of the things that I learned from gaming, starting with the strategy games I played with my husband years and years back, and also from the D&D experience, is how to randomize across a population for results. For instance, we t- commented that Effa died. I had 
I've forgotten how many people. I'd written them all down in PAX's recruit cohort. And many of them were just minor characters. Did you roll dice for them? Yes. (laughs) I rolled dice for them. For every single one of them. Yes, that is how it's done. That is how it's done. Now, I started with the knowledge of the percentage of recruits that would normally die in war in that kind of technological setup. That's from the history books. I was going to lose, I think it was 31% or something like that. And so I figured out the percentages and I rolled dice for them. And on some of the the minor engagements, the little battles and ambushes and things like that, I would roll dice for each of those to see how many I lost in each one and who it was. And the only there few people were protected up to a point, but there were points there were drop off points through the book when they were no longer protected from the dice roll. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone surprise you with their uh, survivability? I'm not sure I remember. Okay. But yes, I mean, I, I, everyone that survived to the end was kind of a surprise because they could have gone at any moment. <laughs> now, I quit doing that after a while. When, I, when you start out writing a fantasy, any, any novel and you like your characters and you have interesting characters you've made up and you've put time into giving them backgrounds and histories and all that stuff, you don't like to see them die. Or I don't. No, I can see that. You know, I don't want to kill them off. But some of them have to go. How do you make yourself, and sometimes they have to lose a battle or they have to lose an engagement, it has to go wrong, they're trying something and it fails. How do you keep yourself honest? The best way to keep yourself honest is to figure out what are the odds of success and loss and randomize it. Roll the stupid dice. That's awesome. You know, I'm sorry, I'm still giddy over the fact you actually rolled dice. That's great. We do enjoy that. Now, I want, uh, we're running a little short on time, so I just want to run sorry. through. A, no, you're fine. I just want to run through a a few quick questions and we're going to get into our our final thoughts. Daryl has this this question in the show notes here. I've got to ask it. What exactly is SIB? SIB is a drink, very much like the South American one that I can't think of the name of right now, where you take a bunch of twigs of a holly-related plant and some other herbs and you stick them in a cup and you pour hot water over it. Oh, that's interesting. And then you, you put in a little, like a straw thing. And you drink out of that. Um, mm. I, at the moment, I'm sorry, I'm totally blanking on what this is. It's fairly common in like Argentina and Uruguay and Paraguay. Because I always uh, thought it was like chicory or something like that. Yeah, it was actually listed. No, it's, it's actually it's, listed in the uh, TV Trump's page as one of the uncoffees, which is the coffee drink that isn't coffee because coffee wasn't available at that time period. So that's that's why it's I was a stimulant. Highly... It's a stimulant drink, but it's was really based on the South American one, and which has more twigs, stick-like little things, instead of made, being made from berries. Now, uh, another question I have for you is, um, with the success of like the Game of Thrones television show, um, has there been interest in uh, making Dita Paxonarian into a television or a movie? It's been optioned uh, once or twice, but it's never gone anywhere. I think partly because they don't I think it may be a gender thing. It may be that George got there first. You know, or it could be and, like and the, up, the Wheel of Time most thing. most of the market for it. I don't know. Uh, did you guys hear about the Wheel of Time? Oh, the, let's not get into that. The, pi- <laughs> the, the <laughs> pilot that aired at 1.30 in the morning. Oh, Lord, that whole pilot. Yeah, it was oh. made specifically just so they could keep the rights. Yeah, that was. Um, it's, it's, it's a dick move. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so there you you mentioned a polearm story <laughs> earlier oh, on. Yes, I had never, of course, done any fighting with polearms. I'd done some fencing, handle firearms, things like that, but not polearms. So, in order to figure out what would happen if you had a troop of recruits and polearms, I cut down some of the giant reed, those cane reeds, you know, that you make cane poles out of, and recruited some kids that used to live here in the neighborhood. Oh, my God. Who, of course, thought it was great fun to play soldier. And we went out and started trying to drill in the horse lot. And everything that happens to the recruits while they're first learning to use polearms is something that happened to Oh, this. oh, God. I would love to have seen a video. No, 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 no. There's oh no pictures. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, I was busy being the drill sergeant. There was no time to take pictures. Oh. That's, that's, that's awesome, though. That's amazing. That is funny. 200,000 okay. YouTube views minimum. Uh, Daryl, if, if you got something else, I'm going to jump into uh, final thoughts. Well, there's uh, one other thing. We've talked a lot about the historical events and a lot of the cultural things that have come up. Um, there's kind of the obvious... Uh, Luop's name was, the theory is, you know, spelled backwards as Paul, as in the Apostle. But other than that, were there any inspiration for the various naming types that you came up with? You talked about this a little bit. Actually, Luap's name was Luap because I was looking for a name that had an ooh sound in the middle. (laughs) It didn't occur to me that it was Paul spelled backwards until somebody pointed it out. (laughs) So, yes, I get to go and edit TV tropes after this episode's done. <laughs> no, I wanted, you know, I thought of Tuan, I thought of Puap, I thought of all sorts of things, and then I came up with Luap, and I thought, oh, that's not a real word in any language that I know of, so I'll use that. Of course, if I had thought about it and spelled it backwards, I would have said, oh, no, 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 no. no. Uh, but about the other cultures and all the names, because the names really ring true it's it's one of those there is a a trope that's called only one uh, one steve limit where only one character can be named this and aside from the main characters there are a lot of ancillary characters that have the same name as other ones but what was it that inspired you to go with for example in the north uh the last names are uh all based on familial first names was there anything that kind of inspired that or for across probably, the board with the names, probably Norway and Iceland, where they used to be. Well, yeah, yeah, for that for that one specifically. But I mean, for like, were there any other cultural influences you drew on, or historical events that inspired the books? Oh heavens, yes. Uh, <laughs> let's see. For instance, Sinyava's name nickname of Honeycat. There was a famous guy in Italian history. I think it's about the 13th century. He was a warlord, a condottiere and ended up becoming a duke. And his nickname was Honeycat in Italian. So when they did the Italian edition of it, they had to change. <laughs> they had to change Honeycat to something else because everybody would have thought, oh, she's talking about him. <laughs> That's Gatamalata, if you look it up in history. I can't, of course, at this moment because I'm brain dead. I will link in the show notes. I need to do a really quick correction too. Um, when we were talking earlier about the the the, the end of Oath of Gold, um, I didn't want to give the listeners the mis- uh, I, I think I was under a mistaken impression it was the followers of, of Achira. It was actually the followers of Liart. Different yes. two two different evil gods. So just to be clear, it was the Liart the, the Liart Church. Yeah, that Ch- did the Achira Blood was Lord. 
Yeah, Charo yeah, was always much more on the, the, with yeah, the behind the scenes kind of cowardice. web weaving kind of stuff, and yeah. the other one was a little bit more blunt in their yeehaw evil. Yeah, they were yeehaw evil. Yay, evil! We're so evil, we're going to choose to torture the paladin rather than go after the king. That's yeah. the thing. So that, sorry, just to be clear, that's that was a thing I messed up. Uh, let's talk to Lauren first. All right, Lauren, what are your final thoughts on the deed of Paxonary? I cannot wait to finish this series and start reading. <laughs> All of the little other extra books in it. I'm, I'm, I've actually been surfing online while we've been talking, trying to find all the other books on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I keep, I keep seeing her with the, her eyes darting toward the Kindle that's sitting on the table this entire conversation. I'm just like, no, because if I start reading it, then I'll completely tune everybody and everything else out and I'll totally miss something. So, um, for the record, to my employers, uh, about, uh, November, I am so sorry I was inattentive at work for that day. <laughs> I was completely sucked in to this entire world. This is, hands down, the best interpretation of a paladin I've ever seen. It is one of the greatest backstories I've ever seen for a character and their development and how they become the PC we all knew they should be, except for that's not the point, is the backstory. This is... It's the road traveled more than the destination that's important. And every single step along the way gives you insight into the mentality of someone who would actually choose this path for themselves. And it is just so brilliantly written. It sucks you in so well. You feel every emotional punch through the entire thing from the very beginning to her as a farm girl wanting to run away from a marriage and her cousin happened to tell her sign on with a mercenary unit and she runs to town, literally just runs to town away from her father and her family to join this thing all the way up until the very end where she's leading a campaign against the people who are traitorously trying to uh, stop the king from taking his rightful throne. And it just, it is so amazing, so great, so brilliantly written and it sucks you in for every moment you feel every I, i'm repeating myself now i'm rambling yeah, it is you are. just so <laughs> can i get back in on the conversation <laughs> sorry i stepped on your toes there lauren <laughs> but i and most of my campaigns that i've played as far as like D D and pathfinder i'm always playing playing like the half elf ranger and stuff like that i'm definitely going for the female pal female <laughs> paladin next time because I've always seen the male paladins and I would get laughed at for the female paladins and I, I'm just like I'm gonna this time I'm gonna play a female paladin because now I know it can be done and it can be done in a very awesome way and I'm gonna give the guys a run for their money. Hell yeah you are <laughs> that's awesome. As for me, as I said I read this um right as I graduated high school in nineteen ninety two. And as I said, to me, it's a very important book uh, because the Deed of Paxonarian is the first time I think I saw a character that I felt was very real. You know, I, I, I talked about this earlier with Elizabeth's characters. They're all, they, have, uh, they have families that have issues. They have flaws and they, they have doubts and they overcome them. And it made me really care about the characters. And it started me really trying to understand more about the craft of, of writing a story like this. Of course, obviously, because I'm a gamer, you know, it has special mm -hmm. significance because of its 
uh, origins and it's, it's, it has significance because of, as Daryl says, it's, you know, the archetypical, this is how you play a paladin. But beyond that, beyond just those niche things, I think it's one of the classic fantasy novels for a reason. And it's absolutely deserves a place on the shelf of anybody who is a fantasy fan because it is an epic tale that starts out very small and is told in very small stories that leads to a crowning moment of awesome for the character that has rarely been rivaled. Yeah, there are three books I will throw out immediately for, or three series I will throw out immediately for people who are wanting to know what the fantasy genre is all about when it relates to gaming. Number one is Lord of the Rings, kind of defined <laughs> the genre. Uh, number two is Gentleman Bastards, because I love it so much, because it is the quintessential rogue, and that's one of my favorite character classes to play. And number three, in a very, very close number three, is, without a doubt, the Dita Paxanarian. Because it takes a class that I never really played that much, and just makes me want to jump in and play. Okay, this is how you do it. And it adds so much to the genre, in my opinion. I'm, I'm going to feel a little weird asking Elizabeth for her final thoughts because <laughs> this is, you know, she's still writing it. Uh, but maybe, maybe her final thoughts on the, the original trilogy, uh, if she wants to share them with us. Final thoughts on the original trilogy is that I was very, very sad when Pax rode away at the end of it. And I have been trying to make her come back and be a point of view character again. Woo! But, however, Please. she has refused. This is like 25 years she has refused. I'm not sure it's ever going to happen. I oh. could still write in the universe. She could still be there as a non-point-of-view character. But from her point of view, her story, her arc from the raw farm girl to the paladin, that's what counts to her. That's what she thinks is important to be told. I can, I can get behind that, actually. So, so, would you, so you would say that the actual journey of the deed of Paxanarian is more important than anything that came after? To her. her. To her. And she, she won't come in. I mean, my characters do this to me. She <laughs> will, she will not come back to me in that way. And I am not going to fake her. If she comes back, I'll write her. If she doesn't come back, I'm not going to fake her. She's too important to me to fake. But I've had a lot of fun with the others. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I will say that uh, as a writer myself, I've learned that trying to get your characters to force them to do things is kind of like hurting cats. Yeah, so. it can be. They turn plastic on you. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the barkeep has given us the eye, and the Imperial Guard may be coming by shortly to shut us Whoops. down. <laughs> so I want to ask uh, really quick, uh, Elizabeth, can you tell the listeners about where they can find out more about you and what your latest thing is that they should be looking for on bookshelves? Where they can find out more about me, my main website, elizabethmoon.com. For these books, the PaxWorld website at paxworld.com. What's coming next, I'm going back into Vada's world to write another Vada book. Yay! But there is also an ebook out called Deeds of Honor that has a number of stories from Pax World in it, although they are not Paxanarian stories. Fantastic. Uh, and I've and, had a lot of fun here. <laughs> well, we, on behalf of uh, all three of us, Lauren, myself, and Daryl, we want to say how grateful we are to you for coming on board and telling us all about your, your books. Well, I do want to mention one other thing that Elizabeth has done. Uh, it's a book called Speed of Dark, which yes. won the Nebula Award. 
Uh, I know many of our listeners are autistic as well. That's the focus of this story. Uh, if it's something that either affects you or affects someone near you, definitely check this out. Even if it's not, check out this book. It is brilliantly written. It, it got less accolades than it deserved, in my opinion, and it got a lot of accolades. So well, I, I also just want to point out Trading in Danger. It's first Vada book. It's fantastic. Go get it. Um, <laughs> Thank so- you all so much. <laughs> You're very welcome. All right. And that is going to close us out. So until next time, may all your hits be crits.